Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good morning, good evening, or good night to my titans, warlords, enforcers, and new listeners. Today I'm bringing you five Swedish tales, and I'll go through each one here. The Drizzle, a tale between God and the Devil, and how this Swedish author perceived them to both be almost one and the same. The Wages of Sin, the giving away of love to another man, who has more courage and more strength to pursue what he wants. The Communion, a tale of a young man who simply wants to be entertained and seeks it without taking care for his actions. The Clown, a story of one's lot in life and how the punishment of the young flow into society and the role that some endure. And lastly, Signy, a tale of imagination, literary works, and dreams. Folks, I hope you love all these Swedish tales without music and told in audiobook format. I also won't be including an outro to this episode because I have a sore throat creeping up on me, but I do want to say a special thank you to all my Patreon supporters, but I'll keep it brief. Thank you to my jaw-droppingly amazing Ode Night Tea Titan. Queen of Cat's Maya, my awesome White Tea Warlord, Leza Bauer, and Paige Kramer. And of course, the amazing Earl Grain Forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boy, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you all for having my back. I'm going to have a rest early, so I'm ready to recover and fully fighting fit by Monday. Plenty of time to rest. It's nothing serious, but I find that when I rest early, I recover so quick that it's like I never had it at all. So we'll see how we go, mates. Thank you so much. And as always, till next we meet, enjoy your stories. The Drizzle Autumn is here again with its dismal days, and the sun is hiding himself in the darkest corners of the heavens so no one shall see how pale and aged and worn he has grown in this latter time. But while the wind whistles in the window chinks, and the rain purls in the rain spouts, and a wet dog howls in front of a closed gate down below on the street, and before the fire has burned down in our tile stove, I will tell you a story about the drizzle. Listen now. For some time back, the good God had become so angered over the wickedness of men that he resolved to punish them by making them still wickeder. He should, in his great goodness, have liked above all things to have drowned them all together in a new deluge. He had not forgotten how agreeable was the sight when all living creatures perished in the flood. But unfortunately, in a sentimental moment, he had promised Noah never to do so again. Hearken, my friend, he therefore said to the devil one day. You are assuredly no saint, but occasionally you have good ideas, and one can talk things over with you. The children of men are wicked and do not want to improve. My patience, which is infinite, has now come to an end, and I have resolved to punish them by making them wickeder, Still, the fact is, I hope they will then collectively destroy each other and themselves. 
It occurs to me that our interests, otherwise so far apart, should here for once find a point of contact. What advice can you give me? The devil bit the end of his tail, reflectively. Lord, he answered finally, thy wisdom is as great as thy goodness. Statistics show that the greatest number of crimes are committed in the autumn. When the days are dismal, the sky is grey, and the earth is enveloped in rain and mist. The good God pondered these words for a long while. I understand, he said finally. Your advice is good, and I will follow it. You have good gifts, my friend, but you should make better use of them. The devil smiled and wagged his tail, for he was flattered and touched. He then limped home. But the good God said to himself, Hereafter it shall always drizzle. The clouds shall never clear. The mist never lift. The sun never shine more. It shall be dark and grey to the end of time. The umbrella makers and the overshoes manufacturers were happy at the start, but it was not long before the smile froze upon their lips. People do not know what importance fair weather has for them until they are for once compelled to do without it. The gay became melancholy, the melancholy became mad and hanged themselves in long rows or assembled to hold prayer meetings. Soon no one worked anymore, and the need became great. Crime increased in a dizzying scale. The prisons were overcrowded. The madhouses afforded room for only the clever. The number of the living decreased, and their dwellings stood deserted. They instituted capital punishment for suicide. Nothing did any good. Mankind, who for so many generations had dreamed and poetized about an eternal spring, now went to meet their last days through an eternal autumn. Day by day, the destruction went on. Countrysides were laid waste. Cities fell in ruins. Dogs gathered in the squares and howled. But in the alleys, an old lame man went about from house to house with a sack on his back and collected souls. And every evening he limped home with his sack full. But one evening, he did not limp home. He went instead to the gate of heaven and straight onto the good God's throne. There he stood still, bowed, and said, Lord, thou hast aged in these latter days. We have both of us aged, and it is for that reason we are so dull. Oh, Lord, that was bad advice I gave thee. The sins that interest me need a bit of sunlight once in a while in order to flourish. Look here, you've made me into a miserable rubbish gatherer. With these words he flung his dirty sack so violently against the steps of the throne that the cord broke and the souls fluttered out. They were not black, but grey. That's the last of the human souls said the devil. I give them to thee, Lord, but beware of using them, 
if thou intendest to create a new world. The wind whistled in the window chinks, the rain pearls in the rain spouts, and the story is done. He who has not understood it may console himself with the thought that it will be fair weather tomorrow. The Wages of Sin This is the story of a young girl and an apothecary with a white vest. She was young and slim. She smelled of pine woods and heather, and her complexion was sunburned and a trifle freckled. So she was when I knew her. But the apothecary was a quite ordinary apothecary. He wore a white vest on Sundays, and on a Sunday this attracted attention. It attracted attention in a place in the country so far away from the world that no one in that region was so sophisticated as to wear a white vest on Sundays except the apothecary. This, you see, was how it happened that one Sunday morning there was a knock at my door, and when I opened it, the apothecary stood outside in his white vest and bowed several times. He was very polite and very much embarrassed. I beg your most humble pardon, he said. But Miss Erica was here yesterday with her sisters while you were away, and when she went, she left her poetry book for you and me to write something in it. Here it is, but I don't know at all what to write. Could you perhaps kindly... And he bowed again several times. We will think the matter over. I answered in a friendly tone. I took the book, therefore, and for my own share, inscribed a translation of Dubis Where In Bloom, which I had made myself and which I always use for that purpose. I then began to search among my papers to see if by any chance I had some old verses from my old school days which would suit for the apothecary. Finally, I came upon the following bad poem. You set my thoughts in turmoil, I wither in longings blight. In solitude you haunt me, I dreamed of you in the night. I dreamed that we walked together, side by side in the twilight dim. And through your lowered lashes, I saw the bright tear swim. I kissed your cheek and your eyelids, I saw the tear drop fall. But oh, your red, red lips, love, I kissed them most of all. One cannot always dream sweetly. Small rest since then I have known. For sorrowful oft and weary, I watch through the night hours alone. Alas, your cheeks so soft, love, I touch but with glance tryst. And those red lips, my darling, I never, never have kissed. I showed the apothecary this poem and offered to let him use it. He read it through attentively twice and blushed all over with delight. Did you really write that yourself? He answered in his simplicity of heart. Yes, I'm sorry to admit. He thanked me very warmly for the permission to use the poem. And when he went out of the room, I imagine we both had the feeling that we must drop the formality of Mr. at the first opportunity. That evening there was a little party at the girls' room. Young folks were there. We drank cherry syrup on a veranda festooned with hop vines. I sat and looked at that young girl. No, she was not like herself. Her eyes were bigger and more restless than usual, and her mouth was redder, and she could not sit still on her chair. From time to time she cast a furtive glance at me, but more often she looked at the apothecary, 
and the apothecary looked at evening like a turkey cock. When the punch was passed around, we dropped the mister. We young people went down on the meadow to play games. We tossed rings and played other games, and meanwhile the sun went down behind the hill and it grew dark. We had laid the rings and the sword in a heap on the ground and were now standing in groups, whispering and smiling, while the dusk came on. But the young girl came up to me through the dusk and took me aside behind a shed. You must answer me a question, said she. Did the druggist really write these verses himself? Her voice trembled, and she tried to look away as she spoke. Yes, I said. He wrote them last night. I heard him going back and forth in his room all night. But when I said that, I felt a sting in my conscience, for I saw that she was a pretty and lovable child, and that it was a great sin to deceive her so. Who knows, I said to myself. Who knows? Perhaps this is the sin of which the scripture says that it cannot be forgiven. The twilight deepened, it became night, and the star burned between the trees in the woods, where we walked in pairs. But I was alone. I do not remember any more where I went that evening. I separated from the others and went deeper into the woods. But deep within the wood, among the firs, I saw a birch with a shining white stem. By the stem stood two young people kissing, and I saw that one of them was the young girl who smelled of pine woods and heather, but the other was the apothecary, and he was a quite ordinary apothecary with a white vest. He held her pressed against the white stem of the birch and kissed her, but when he had kissed her three times, I went away and wept bitterly. Communion it happened when I was hardly more than a boy. It was a blustering autumn evening on board a coast steamer. We had not yet come in from the country, and I had to go in and out of town to school. I had been lazy as usual and was to be examined in several subjects in order to be promoted into a higher class. I went back and forward on the deck in the darkness, with collar turned up and hands in my coat pockets, thinking of my reserves at school. I was almost sure to flunk. As I leaned forward over the railing and saw how the foam hissed whitely and the starboard lantern threw sparkling green reflections on the black water, I felt tempted to jump overboard. Then, at least, the mathematics teacher would be sorry for the way he'd tormented me. Then, well, when it was too late. But in the end, it grew cold outside, and when I thought I had been freezing long enough, I went into the smoking cabin. In my imagination, I can still see the warm, comfortable interior which met my view when I opened the door. The lighted ceiling lamp swung slowly back and forth like a pendulum. On the table steamed four whiskey toddies. Four cigars puffed and four gentlemen were telling smutty stories. I recognized them all as neighbors of our summer sojourn. A company director, an old clergyman, a leading actor, and a button dealer. I bowed politely and threw myself down in a corner. I had, to be sure, a slight feeling that my presence might perhaps be superfluous, but on the other hand, it would have been asking too much of me to go out into the wind and freeze when there was so much room in the cabin. Furthermore, I knew within myself that I might very well contribute to the entertainment if necessary. The four men looked askance at me with a certain coolness, and there was a pause. 
I was 16 and had recently been confirmed. People have told me that, at the time, I had a guileless and innocent appearance. The pause, however, was not long. A few swallows from the glasses, a few puffs at the cigar, and the exchange of opinions was once more in full swing. A peculiar circumstance struck me, though. All the stories that were told I had already heard, innumerable times, and for my part I found them comparatively flat. Smutty stories may, as is well known, be divided into two chief groups, one of which concentrates itself mostly about digestive processes and circumstances related to them, whereas on the contrary, the other, which stands incomparably higher in degree, has preferably to do with women. I and my schoolmate had long since left the former group behind us. I was therefore the more surprised to hear these mature gentlemen give it their liveliest interest, while the other, much more appealing group was passed over in silence. I did not understand it. Could this possibly be out of any undue consideration for me? I need not say to what extent the suspicion of such a thing provoked me. The lively tone of the cabin had affected me and made me venturesome, so that I resolved to put an end to this childishness. Look here, uncle, I burst out quite impulsively during a silence after a story which was so harmless that even the clergyman guffawed it. Don't you remember the story the captain told day before yesterday? Uncle was the company director, who was a friend of my father. I continued undismayed. That was the choicest I've heard in all my days. Couldn't you please tell it? Four pairs of astonished eyes were directed upon me, and a painful silence set in. I already regretted my rash courage. The company director broke the ice with a skittish little chuckle, which was but a faint echo of the thunder he had allowed to roll out a couple of days before when the captain had told the story. <laughs> yes, that wasn't so bad. He then began to tell it. It was very highly seasoned and had to do with women. The leading actor at first hid his feelings behind his customary mask of dignified seriousness, whereas on the other hand, the button dealer, an old buck who had grown grey in sin, regarded me with a sort of furtive interest, in which was an element of increased respect for my personality. But when the anecdote began to take a somewhat precarious turn, it was suddenly interrupted by the clergyman, a kindly old man with a pious and childlike expression of his elderly smooth-shaven countenance. <clears throat> Pardon me, the interruption, my good brother, but... And he turned a little in his chair so that he could direct his words at me. How old, may I ask, is this young man? Has he been to our lords? To communion? I felt that I flushed blood red. I had forgotten that there was a clergyman in the company. Yes. I stammered almost inaudibly. I, I was confirmed last winter. Indeed. Returned the old clergyman while he slowly stirred his glass of toddy. Then, without looking up, in a voice which forty years of meditation between God and the world had impressed with a mild tone of tolerance and indulgence, he continued. Go on, my dear brother. Excuse the interruption. The Clown Yesterday a familiar face flitted by me on the street. It was pale and had a tired expression, but the features were sharp and strongly marked. I did not recall his name. 
I was sure I'd seen him sometime, perhaps a long while ago, but I could not remember when or under what circumstances. His face had aroused my interest without my being able to explain why, and I dug all sorts of old recollections out of the junk room of my memory in order to identify him, but in vain. In the evening, I was at the theater. There, to my surprise, I found him again on the stage in a minor role. He was but little disguised. I recognized him at once and looked for his name on the program. I found it, but it was unknown to me. I followed his acting with tense interest. He took the part of a miserably stupid and ridiculous servant whom everybody made fun of. The role was as wretched as the piece, and he played it mechanically and conventionally, but in certain intonations his voice assumed a sharp and bitter character which did not belong to the part. They re-echoed in my ear those tones till late into the night, and with their help I at last succeeded in digging up the recollection with which they belonged. I discovered that we had been schoolmates, but he was many years younger than I. When I was in the highest class, he was in the lowest. When I was in the top of the class, I was one day standing at the window toward the end of a lunch recess. Recesses at the school were an especial abomination of mine. I could never find anything to do. I knew that I did not know my lesson and I could not set myself to going over it. The slight vexation I felt about the coming lesson always faded before a greater, a vexation about life. A gnawing premonition that the days to follow would be as empty and meaningless as those which had passed. So I was walking back and forth with my hands in my jacket pockets, now and then stopping at the window which was open. As I stood there, my attention was caught by a peculiar occurrence which was taking place down in the yard just below the window. A little boy in one of the lowest classes, a lad of ten or eleven, lay stretched on his back, surrounded by a crowd of other boys in a ring. Their faces, most of them at any rate, had the expression of evil curiosity which children and uncultured people do not know how to conceal. A little broad-shouldered fellow with high cheekbones, who gave the impression of being very strong for his age, stood in the ring with a whip in his hand. You are my slave, he said to the boy on the ground. Aren't you? Say, I am your slave. I am your slave, answered the child without hesitating, which indicated that this was not the first time he had said it. Get up, ordered the other. The boy got up. Imitate B, the way he looked when he comes into the class. B was the teacher who went on crutches. The boy went a couple of steps outside the ring, which opened to give him space. Then he came back on the improvised stage and executed as he did so the movement of a man walking on crutches. He did his part very well. The illusion was complete, and the onlookers applauded. But the little actor stood there with a serious expression. He had a pallid little face and black clothes. Perhaps he had just lost his father or mother. Laugh! ordered the other with a light flick of the whip which he had in his hand. The boy tried to obey, but it did not come easily. The laugh sounded forced at the start but it was not long before he succeeded in laughing himself into a genuine, quite natural guffaw, and with that he turned towards his master as if it was at him that he laughed. But the latter already desired to have his slave show off new accomplishments. Say, my father is a damned scoundrel, 
The boy looked around the circle with a helpless glance. When he saw that no one gave a semblance of wanting to help him, and that, on the contrary, all stood in eager expectation of something really amusing, he said as low as he dared, My father is a damned scoundrel. That drew unbound applause. Laugh! Cry! The child began to simulate weeping, but with that he now came into the mood he was ordered to imagine. The weeping stuck in his throat, and he shed actual tears. Let him be, said an older boy in the circle. He's crying in earnest. And with that, the school bell rang. Some day afterwards, he ran past me on the way from school. I noticed that his jacket was ripped open in the back. Wait a bit, I said to him. Your jacket has been split open in the back. No, he said. It hasn't split open. They've cut it open with a penknife. Have they dirtied your book for you too? I asked. Yes, they've laid it in the gutter. Why are they so mean to you? I don't know. They are stronger than I am. He knew of no other reason. But of course, that was not the only one. They must have found something in him that irritated them. I saw it in him that he was not like the others. The exceptional, the divergent always irritates children and mobs. A schoolboy's eccentricities are punished by the teacher with a well-intended monition or a dry, satiric smile, but by his comrades, they are punished with kicks and scuffs and a bloody nose, with a torn jacket and a cap carefully laid under a rain spout and his best book thrown into the gutter. Well, he is an actor now. That was surely his natural predestination. He now talks from the stage to a large public. It would be strange if sometime he did not make his way. I believe he has talent. Perhaps he will gradually transform his peculiarity to a pattern, according to which others try to conform as to an inoffensive, regular verb. Signy Signy was a little girl about as old as I, with a pink dress and a pink ribbon in her hair. Her hair was dark, with curly locks, and she had dark blue starry eyes, with long lashes. She was not at all angelic. I didn't care a great deal for angels, perhaps in a special because they always had fair hair. I had fair hair myself at that time, like most children, and light hair wasn't much, I thought. But I thought an awful lot of Signy. I could go about thinking of her for whole days. It was not seldom that she did something naughty, which I was blamed for, and sometimes I myself took the blame voluntarily. I cared no less for her on that account, but only wished that she would do more naughty things than I get the blame of them. But what was the bit of deviltry she hit upon? Let me think. She ran off and hid somewhere where we were forbidden to go, in some dangerous place where there might be trolls and spooks. One time, I remember clearly that she wheeled me into playing with matches, playing with fire, the most dangerous and most strictly forbidden thing there was. Didn't she set fire to an old dry bush in the garden? Why, to be sure, she did. 
and I got the switch from mother. Oh, how I cared for Signy, and sometimes she said words that shouldn't be said. The shivers went up and down my back, but I only wanted her to say them again. I don't know just where she lived. It wasn't in the same house as we did. The other children whom I played with didn't know her, but she must have lived in the same street. I suppose in a little home with a garden surrounded by a fence? Or did she live in a garret cupola obliquely across the street with flowers on the windowsill? Huh. I may just as well say right out that she didn't live anywhere. She existed only in my imagination. Signy was the first creation of my fancy, at least the first I can recall. I was a good six or seven years old, and at that stage, just as beside a sixty, seventy or more, one often thinks aloud. To be brief, I went about prattling to myself as I imagined things about Signy, and one fine day it happened, of course, that my mother heard me. Listen to the boy, she said to my father. Listen how he goes around talking to himself. And to me, she said, what are you thinking about? Grown-ups have a terrible passion for asking children the most inconsiderate questions. I ran off and hid. Another day, it was the same story, and still another day. Pain and embarrassment, questions that could not be answered. My father said to me, Other children talk to themselves up to four and five years old. You are too big for that. I perceived that things couldn't go on any longer. Something must be done. It occurred to me that it was the sibilant sound that betrayed me. Signy, Signy. That wouldn't do. So I changed Signy's name to Ida. In that way, I succeeded in having her sometimes in peace, but Ida never really got the same power of enchantment over me as Signy. One fine day, we became enemies. I quarreled with her and called her a silly girl, and perhaps I even went so far as to scratch her. I regretted it, to be sure, but wouldn't ask her pardon, and soon after I let her go to the deuce. At the same time, I learned to think in silence, and with a few exceptions, have continued to do so. But whence had I got Signy? In the same house with us lived a little girl, with whom I sometimes played. Her mother was in the ballet, and once she dressed herself in one of her mother's ballet skirts, but she was neither Signy nor Ida. She performed no deviltries and had none of Signy's magic power over my heart. I must then, at the age of seven, have created Signy as the German creates a camel out of the depths of my consciousness. Then, too, I was predestined. After that, the years rolled on and my genuinely literary impulses arrived, only quite late. The first strong urge came when one of my schoolmates, it was the present professor at the Caroline Institute, during a lesson in mother tongue, declaimed with powerful effect Victor Rydberg's Flying Dutchman. I became wild with enthusiasm, and for months afterwards dreamed of nothing else than being able at some period in the remote future to write something equally fine. So far, I haven't succeeded. But why should one give up hope?